0: Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this new crazy mother... Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of Dead Pundit Society. I am your host, as always, Adam Proctor, and we are plugging along with our episodes covering the Democratic Party primary race in 2020. Things are heating up. Bernie Sanders looking quite good in Nevada and other primaries and caucuses to come. So we have somebody on the show who is well-placed to talk about some of the potential pitfalls and traps that lay ahead for the Bernie Sanders campaign. She has been active in the DNC rat race, the hustle, the no holds barred cage match that is the DNC insider kind of political machinations. We're going to talk all about that. Now, Miki Contz, thanks so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me and for uh, talking about my favorite topic. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Did I pronounce your name correctly? Have we anglicized this all to hell? Because it's proper <laughs> Greek, right? It'd be nomiki konst, yeah, with a gut it, with gusto.
1: It's really um, so. This is this. I have a show which I'm sure we'll talk about. But uh, part of the idea of the show's name is to get people to say my name properly because it's been you know 36 years. It's nomiki properly yes and const is fine the real last name for those of you uh who don't know pretty much everybody uh it's constant so it was shortened it was one of those like ellis island chop it at the at the island kind of deals when my my grandparents came over
0: that's one of the times where you know they i don't know if you want to call it um colonialism orientalism no what, whatever you greek folks face uh, cultural <laughs> hegemony um I, I appreciate that one Constant's is a lot easier to pronounce uh, for sure for
1: and sure. people think i'm german i grew up in buffalo new york so people thought i was german my whole life <laughs> yeah, like, no it, I, the, I don't i'm very greek <laughs> the thing about
0: the greek is they put the emphasis on a different syllable than we do right it's very <laughs> very confusing that way
1: and they add a few more syllables to yeah. it <laughs> no Exactly. Yes. You got it. Okay. Perfect.
0: Yeah. Killing it. <laughs> all right. So as you mentioned, uh, you have a show, the Nomiki show, it airs on YouTube and uh, iTunes. Tell our listeners all about it. I've learned a lot from that show so far and I have yet to listen to all the episodes, full disclosure, but I'm on it. Tell the audience about the show.
1: Thank you, Adam. Um, it's a new show. We, we launched about a month ago and the idea of the show is really to help break down how the establishment. Uh, functions, not just necessarily the Democratic Party, although that's a big part of the show right now, given that we are in the midst of this primary process, but also how um, other organizations in the, the establishment universe, the industrial complex of, of the Democrats, whether it's Center for American Progress or some of the more, like Emily's List, um, different organizations that focus on electing Democrats or supporting, you know, quote unquote, progressive policy or democratic policy, how they are structured. And if they're doing anything to, uh, suppress the movement, the workers movement. And so, you know, we want to pull back the curtain, explain how it works. Where's the money coming from? What are the, um, strategies, strategies that they use against us? And what can we do to fight back? And then we also, um, uh, just do deeper dive interviews, bring on experts and, and, you know, activists and authors, you know, as so many other shows do. But, um, I think it's really important to, to diversify the show and offer, uh, different perspectives. It's not so, uh, breaking, you know, we're not focused on breaking news. And part of that is I just was in that industry for a really long time and I'm exhausted (laughs) and I wanted to do one show a week, um, which really isn't ending up that way. (laughs) I'm doing one show a week and then I'm doing all these segments in between, but, um, I won't ask you
0: anything uh, that happened in the last two weeks. I'll promise you that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) <laughs> the Iowa caucus, what happened? Yeah,
0: yeah we'll, we'll talk about that for the show. I'll, I'll fill you in on the details in case you didn't
1: yeah. catch it. Yeah. Uh,
0: so you were a Bernie surrogate in 2016. If, if anybody was paying attention at that in that time, a lot of my audience are kind of new to the left progressive scene. They Welcome. are, uh, you know, Bernie crats. They, they some of them became, you know, full um, gay space, communist, Maoist, uh, Leninists or whatever have you in that time. Uh, we love you, too. We love all the ultra lefts as much as we love the sort of soft Bernie crats. Tell our audience what that journey was like as a Bernie surrogate in 2016. It was a very lonely place to be quite quite a change from today on. Huh?
1: Very much so. I was just talking about this with my producer. Um, we just finished up the segment. We were talking about how I would I would go on cable news. And, you know, this is back when people watched cable news. Uh, they still watch cable news <laughs> uh, on the left, including. Um, but I would go on, I, I would be on CNN, Fox, and MSNBC. I, I would do several hits a day, you know, sometimes as early as 4 o'clock in the morning for the pre-early shows that the, those things exist. Yes. Um And then I would stay on for debate nights and I would stay on till one o'clock in the morning. In two situations, I slept on the couches in the green room, um, took naps because I was preparing, uh, you know, had another change of clothes to go on. But but doing that in 2016, I mean, the Bernie campaign grew so fast and didn't really have the infrastructure in place like a full surrogates program or a messaging department that would hand me talking points. So I was I was really learning as I went, um, learning about the Democratic Party process and delivering, you know, if they did have talking points, maybe some some information on policies. But I would go up on there and I would debate, you know, the Hillary Clinton machine. And my interest is really in <laughs> surprise, surprise, in breaking down institutions and following the money. And I found myself in a position where I was fighting, you know, the head the heads of the super PACs for Hillary and saying on air on CNN, you know, midday that they're, they were moving money and funneling money into the DNC and it back into Hillary Clinton's campaign. And I was calling them out on camera and it was pretty dangerous. And I don't think I understood that at the time, but, you know, and I don't think they understood how powerful the movement was either. So that was a lot of what I would do on camera. Um, as we got closer to the convention, I spent a lot of time discussing superdelegates and I did the research and, you know, interviewed people um, to prepare uh, who had been on the hunt commission which decided that superdelegates were a great idea and i would go on air with superdelegates that weren't saying that they were superdelegates and i was debating the dnc rules and then they would say i was wrong and then i would go back and i'd read the dnc rules on air and that's how i learned that most people don't know the dnc rules even dnc members <laughs> so much of it was on air you know commentary but i also would speak at rallies and I, you know i would go to different states and help organize on the ground um, it, was, it was really an amazing moment. And seeing young people learn about the issues as, as we were out there organizing in real time, it was, it was pretty powerful.
0: Well, you're doing the Lord's work uh, as far as I'm concerned and others are concerned. You're doing it so that we don't have to. <laughs> uh, I'm sure you spent many, many hours. Now, you also served on what I call the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Committee of 2016. <laughs> That's right. uh, yeah, Tongue in cheek <laughs> on this show, which is a lot of truth to that. But uh, actually, the, the Unity Reform Commission 2016, which was part of a compromise for Bernie to sort of cede his delegates at the convention and uh, sort of broker a a lasting peace, which I'm sure means that none of the Hillary surrogates are ever going to say anything mean about Bernie, wait, wait, wait a minute, wait. That didn't that didn't turn out so well. Uh, but there were a lot of really, really important reforms that happened as a result of that commission. I'm constantly reminding my audience about how important this kind of journey through the institutions is. That's something that has been i uh, put it lightly poo pooed over the past 20 years by the left because this long journey through the institutions that was supposed to have happened in the 70s and 80s and 90s uh, gave us a kind of third way uh, Clintonian, you know, triangulationist, neoliberal, all the other buzzwords you can sort of imagine, hellscape that we now sort of find ourselves and we're reacting against as a result of this Bernie, uh movement. And yet, uh, people like yourself are showing that this sort of uh, long slog through the institutions is still is still something that's incredibly important. So tell, tell us a little bit about that Unity Reform Commission, how it came about, and what, what some of the results might have been.
1: Yeah. Uh, in 2016, um, for those who, who don't recall, as we went into the convention, uh, Bernie was, you know, he had several delegates, and until California, and if you remember um, the day before the primary in California, which was in June at that point, it wasn't on Super Tuesday. It is this year. Uh, in June, you know, Bernie was leading in the California polls, but the Associated Press called the election for Hillary before primary, and that delivered the number of pledged delegates, meaning the, the delegates that reflect the actual election, um, enough for Hillary to go into the convention. Prior to that, you know, the news was was reporting. And adding the superdelegates to the vote. Uh, but really, they weren't the superdelegates didn't have power until they got into the convention floor. And so going into the convention, Hillary barely squeaked past the, the magic number she needed. And even going into the convention, we thought that Bernie would on the floor argue for two issues um, against fracking and, and against TPP. And that was those are very contentious issues. When we were on the platform committee, I also served on that. Uh, and we weren't able to get what we really, the, the full, um, platform. I mean, if you look at the platform, yes, it's the most progressive platform in history, but the reality is that we were in the minority just as we were in the unity reform commission. So he was trying to negotiate as much as possible. But at the end of the day, he decided that, uh, he would surrender his delegates, all of us, uh, to Hillary Clinton. So she would grasp the nomination without any floor fight and, the result was they would set up this commission called the Unity Reform Commission, and the goal of the commission was to uh, reform the Democratic Party's primary process and caucus process, as well as the party itself, and to eliminate uh, a certain number of superdelegates, at least a certain number, and we, we went beyond that. So that, that began, I was nominated to the commission in, I think, the fall of 2016, if I'm correct. And then we uh, began in 2017 after Tom Perez was, was won the election. He had three appointed uh, members and Hillary Clinton had nine and we, or no, 11 and we were eight. So we were definitely the minority. Let's just start off with that. Like, if, if it was just up to <laughs> us. We would have had a very You need to good say that
0: Tom Perez is not a fair dealer when it comes to mediating <laughs> those disputes with us.
1: I think he thinks he is.
0: Blasphemy. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so how that, how that uh, shake? First of all, let me back. hmm uh, what did you do to deserve a, a spot on that commission? That's what I <laughs> want to know. I mean, that that's, I mean, like, I, I'm what punishment? obviously mean? <laughs> kidding. Like, who did you piss off? You know, was it Weaver? Was, I mean, who are we talking about? Yeah. Uh, well, with
1: he, the had dirt. A, he had a servana too. so yeah. <laughs> He's yeah like, I know he dragged
0: one. you into, I mean, if you got to go to hell, you know, drag your buddies with you. You know, that's, that's what I say. Exactly. Um, so, I mean, what was that like? I mean, what, what was there, was there open outright tension in, uh, you know, in these, And these, you know, meeting rooms, I I, I can imagine, I I can only imagine how contentious that, that might have been.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because on on one hand you had Hillary people um, that were in the majority, but not all of the Hillary people were kind of from the same um, tribes. And I say that because like some of them used to be Obama people and you, you, I very quickly learned that they didn't all agree on everything. Um, There were a lot of consultants and the consultants, you know, kind of operate in flocks. So, you know, everybody had their key sets of issues that they cared about. And uh, there was definitely a strategy. I don't know how uniform the strategy was. I think that they probably made some concessions. They definitely made some concessions to us. Uh, But there were issues in which they did not negotiate. And even then, like once we finally, after doing this for a year and a half, once we finally uh, settled on on everything and voted, even the the, the day of, we had some backroom conversations that got very heated because people reversed their positions on things, or they went into the the room that was you know where the public was and they pulled back you know their th- their thoughts. And I think at the end of the day, what we have to keep in mind is because like it, it, the Democratic Party likes to drag things out through process. You know how you kill something, you send it to a committee. Um, Just, you know, there's this commission that no one was paying attention to. And and frankly, the only reason I was paying attention to it was because I was like calling up TYT and telling them to to air it. But even then, like they didn't have Wi-Fi in the basement. They wouldn't release information to the uh, the public. The press may have got a press release the day before. And we were in all different you know areas of the country doing these commissions. They were several hours long. People don't know the rules of the Democratic Party. If so, they don't even follow them. Even people on the commission were confused because there's some process stuff. We did have people on the commission who, um, like Jim Zogby and Larry Cohen, who knew kind of the tricks because they've been in it for so long, um, in the DNC for so long. But for the most part, um, it was it was tricky. And then we we came up with a report, and then it was sent six months later to the Rules and Bylaws Committee, and then they spent another you know year deliberating or or six months deliberating the the commission's report. And the Rules and Bylaws Committee was appointed by Chairman Perez. So it's like we just went through this whole commission, which costs a lot of money, by the way, and then a, a non-democratic uh, committee decides what should actually be written into rules and, and into law for the Democratic Party. So we were in the minority um, already, and then it had to go through and get watered down by the Rules and Bylaws Committee, and no one was paying attention to that. I mean, I, I barely was at that point because I was so frustrated. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and then that's how we got a weakened commission report. Although it's, you know, there are definitely reforms in there that did not exist last mm-hmm, time. So. Mm-hmm.
0: so you get a yeah. non, <laughs> non-binding advisory agreement that that ends up being sort of implemented at will by Perez and his appointees. Yeah, that's, that's it's, right. It's pretty dirty. But but nonetheless, I mean, I think that one of the beautiful things here that, that has happened, I mean, there were a number of, I talk about uh, quite a bit on my show over the past several months, although it's a sour subject now for me, British politics, that is. Uh, I've talked about how a number of, reforms inside the UK Labor Party backfired in order to democratize and open up the the, the voting for the, you know, the labor leader elections um, in, in the late 90s. Uh, it was sort of, you know, one person, one vote. And, uh, it was, it was a bet to demobilize the so-called activist core of the party. They, their bet was that the, the quote, every man was far more conservative and practical and pragmatic than these labor activists. And it turned out to be quite the opposite. And it gave us Corbyn, um, dot, dot, dot. I, I don't know what happened after that. I stopped paying attention anyway. <laughs> <laughs> <My God. laughs> it's too fucking depressing. To it,
1: it is uh, interesting that you mentioned that though, because, um, Given my limited experiences in the UK, like covering the Labour Party, I mean, I will say that they had their own commission. It was it was structured differently because Corbyn did inherit this party that was divided, a party that, you know, if Bernie Sanders wins, he will inherit a divided Democratic Party, and he has to figure out how to, um, to to unify the party, uh, to win elections and to reform it and find the right chair. And that, I mean, I think that the path for the DNC is to purge all the consultants and lobbyists who have conflicts of interest, which is something that they didn't let us reform. Uh, but with Corbyn, it was different. You know, he had Tony Blair who basically weakened the party in in a million different ways. And, and even at the convention, I think in, um, the labor conference in 2017, uh, you know, they had, they had these booths and it was like Jeremy Corbyn's labor party booth and like the labor party booth. So there was some division. And I don't think that's discussed enough in this postmortem of what happened. Um, is how the Labor Party itself tried to uh, block Corbyn from winning I think and that's perpetuated right. the myths. And, and that's a really important
0: allegory there. I mean, you know, for us to think through, it's already sort of – we're already uh, – they have a head start on us. Um, fortunately, we can learn from their mistakes. I wanted to ask you, particularly in the, in the Unity Reform Commission and elsewhere, and this is really instructive, I think, in terms of framing our conversation about the DNC and the kind of challenges we're going to be up against. Did you find that this kind of – this consultant class – was ideological in any way, <laughs> or <No. laughs> are they totally, totally um, under the the grips of you know their their various affinity groups? their they're sort of uh, struct their structured interests and in, in, as consultants as. Uh, professional, uh, you know, professional staffers in the political realm, because that's what you saw in the labor party, for sure. You saw people sort of, um, playing the medium to long game,
1: mm-hmm. sort of
0: hoping and praying that their, their job as a consultant, as a staffer, as a whatever else uh, would be secure once this silliness subsides. Right. Um, so what did you find in terms, what's the makeup? How do these people operate? What's their calculus, their thought process?
1: I think the people who are active consultants, um, are in the industry of making money off of elections, making money off of representing uh, large industries and organizations, um, whether it's you know military contractors, uh, weapons contractors, or um, organizations like uh, with Israel-affiliated interests, or you know there's 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 a lot of folks who are in that industry. Those are the ones who I don't see as ideolo- ideological. I think they're there to represent their clients and the side of the party that's going to continue to deliver their project, their their projects, and their you know, whatever the platform is that you're pushing for. Um, there are people that were on the commission. I'll use Elaine K. as an example. She's not a consultant and she just, you know, she was, she didn't care about the consult. She was happy to, to rid the party of consultants. Same thing with Marsha Fudge. She thought it was disgusting. Uh, Representative Marsha Fudge was, it was disgusting to her that the consultant class has taken over the Democratic Party. There are definitely those folks. Um, But those two also were some of the biggest advocates of Superdome to this day. Marsha Fudge uh, made a comment just a week ago um, and she, you know, thinks that it is important that the, 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 she in particular thinks it's important that people who are Congress, congressional members, they are um, treated with dignity and that they have this role, that this very special role, Um, you know, her quote, her words.
0: No self-interest there at all.
1: No self-interest at all. But Elaine Kmark, on the other hand, she was on the Hunt Commission, uh, in, I think, '81, and she is of the mindset that the Democratic Party, the the the, the security net that's there to make sure that the Democratic Party doesn't have another McGovern moment. Remember the McGovern map? I don't assume you remember because probably weren't alive. But the McGovern map, in which um, we we McGovern won like two states, I think, in the end. Uh, she thinks that super delegates are there to prevent that from happening. And I, I, I've mentioned this a few times since then, but on the commission, I, you know, she sat next to me and I said, Elaine, you know, 2016 was our McGovern moment we, we lost Wisconsin. Like how much more McGovern can you get?
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, you've got a, you've got a Vietnam war that's trudging on. You've got, you've got profound structural like reorganization of the global economy that has smashed the traditional progressive left coalition in the United States and, and, and internationally. You've got, I mean, just you name it. There's a number of things that just sort of get piled up and it's, those are all swept aside. And we're talking about McGovern as though it's this isolated event that, you know, could therefore be pasted on to under, you know, help us understand today's moment. It just, that that kind of vapidity, is that a, vapidity, it's a word now if it wasn't before, is just, it's astonishing. Uh, but anyway, I digress. Uh, it sounds to me that there's just a, I mean, a, even if they don't like consultants, even if they see the blatant kind of cronyism involved in that, it seems like nonetheless they have a profound mistrust of the masses at that level.
1: Yeah, I think that's spot on. I mean, Elaine K. Mark may not like consultants, but she doesn't think that the Democratic primary – Masses that are voting are going to be making the right decisions for the general election, and I think that's just fundamentally false in every single way and form. Because the demographics of of that era versus today have just shifted. I mean, the majority of Democrats identify as progressive by far. Uh, we know what the statistics are for those under forty, the most diverse generation in history, the most educated generation in history, the most indebted generation in history, but also the most politically progressive and independent leaning. And so, I think just for the you know, we said this on the commission. We said this in 2016, over and over. If the Democratic Party wants to exist, they have to be welcoming to these ideas, and they have to be welcoming um, to to dealing with the idea, the the concepts of class struggle. Because you're not going to have a party, and you see that by looking at where young people stand when it comes to to party loyalty. Um, and in fact, we actually should thank Bernie Sanders because he's welcomed. He's actually asked young people to register as Democrats so they can vote in the primaries in many states and 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 in caucuses, you know, in many states um, that pro- these people probably wouldn't be voting at all, maybe. Uh, If it weren't for Bernie Sanders. So he's good for the party. Michael Bloomberg is bad for the party.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk a lot more about that here in in just a few moments. Let's talk. Let's 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 I want to pitch you a macro question, a macro level question. And then we'll peel back and get to some of the details here and some of the more Mm -hmm. intense sort of process oriented questions that I've collected from patrons here. Um, (laughs) I talked at length with Megan Day, Jacobin uh, journalist, Megan Day about mm-hmm. the Democratic Party, and there are a lot of, a number of hot debates that have more or less been, let's say, postponed for the duration of this primary race. And for good reason. I'm, I'm really, really glad to see it. We don't need to be as a left. We don't need to be debating the, the structural, you know, features and contradictions of the Democratic Party in this abstract sort of hyper-theoretical way when we have the opportunity to elect an open democratic socialist. No matter the limitations of our you know, of our uh, capitalist state or whatever you know the case may be, or the institutions that that we're sort of stuck with here. Um, but with that being said, I mean, a lot of my listeners are are thinking very seriously about what these rifts and breaks mean inside the party. What do you see? What do you see? Just in, in sort of in brief, what do you see as the future? of the kind of party scene in the United States? Are we on the way to a massive realignment? And there are a lot of ifs in this sentence. Of course, of course, it depends on how things shake out with Sanders in the primary race. But are we on the way to a crack up, a profound crack up like the one we saw in, in the United States? Probably not since – I mean, we had a realignment, of course, with FDR and the New Deal, but you know, sort of a flip turn upside down of the of the um, affiliations, party affiliations, which lagged behind with the Dixiecrats, but But prior to that, we hadn't seen anything like this since the, the, the collapse of the Whig Party. Right. You know, in the mid 19th century. So there is a precedent for it. But what do you I mean, what are some of the fault lines that you see opening up here? And how do you see this sort of winding playing out in the next 20 some odd years?
1: <laughs> um, I don't know how it's going to play out in the next four months. And that'll determine, I think, the next 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh,
0: I ask these we- big in complicated questions <laughs> on the show, Nomiki. I'm so sorry. You walked into a trap. <laughs> um, no, no,
1: no. But I, I, it, it's actually a real question. Because I think um, if if we do end up nominating Michael Bloomberg, the Democratic Party will be dead. And as a result, the Republican Party will be dead. Because uh, the Republican Party is was barely alive in 2016. It, it's barely alive now, even under Trump, it, even though it's consolidated its power. Uh, but they they survive off of this, like, push and pull of the Democratic Party. And the Democratic Party, of course, does well. I, I don't know if at the end of the day that's good or bad. I mean, I just, I worry about, I worry about climate change like everybody else should. Um, and even if Michael Bloomberg were to somehow um, inspire every, you know, rank and file Democrat to realize the importance of of working people, I think it might be too late, just like we, you know, some people may have thought that electing Donald Trump might have been a wake up call. Okay, sure, it was, but at what cost? Um, We have children in cages at the border. You know, we're now dealing with climate, we've deregulated every industry in the last three years, we don't have an EPA, the FEC is in function. I mean, there's just too many issues we could go through. Um, So I think we have to start Putting pressure on the right pressure points, and it's why I, I actually do care about process. Because one thing I've learned through my work at the Democratic Party is it's not really a lot of bad actors. There's a few, and then there's just a bunch of groupthink. You know, a few vocal folks who have just permeated the DNC, and they have active roles, um, and they're they're just propping up whatever Tom Perez tells them to do. And because there's groupthink, and because there's this institutional fear. Of of speaking out and challenging authority, um, there's not a lot of pushback against it. Obviously, it's growing. I think there's there's a lot more, and I think more rank and file Democrats are realizing that it might be time to support Bernie Sanders if we want to defeat Trump, because they they understand that there's no Democratic Party with Michael Bloomberg. Now, under Bernie, I think we would um it wouldn't happen immediately, but there's there's power in who wins the presidency. If Bernie wins, um, he can choose the Democratic Party chair, and there are some very, very quick uh, moves he can make to reset the party. One being banning conflicts of interest, getting rid of all the lobbyists and all the consultants as DNC members. Um, these appointed committees need to be democratic. You know, there are still state parties that are are flawed, that are not democratic, that are corrupt, like New York. Um, there are processes in these states that are determined by Republican legislatures when it comes to their primaries. So, you know, we're going to have a bigger battle if Bernie wins um, in making the Democratic Party a workers' party. But I think it is more, (laughs) that's the only option right now. Um, But pushing a workers' message, I think, is ultimately what's going to win us those state legislatures back, which the Koch brothers very effectively did in the early 80s as the Democratic Party became more concentrated towards uh, Washington, D.C. So we centralized, they decentralized at a time when they knew that the numbers, um, the population was moving to be a more uh, diverse and, and frankly, progressive population, they very strategically um, focused on redistricting so the Republicans would, would maintain power. And I think that they, they worked, I mean, I, this isn't conspiratorial in my opinion, I think they worked with, with centrist Democrats uh, to make sure that that happened.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot, Pardon the interruption, everybody, but this is the part of the program where I ask you to become one of the three to 400 some odd patrons of the Dead Pundit Society and support this show with your monetary resources. We can't do this program without the generous support of our patrons, so if you like this program, if you learn anything from it, if you benefit from it, if you'd like to see it continue, if you enjoy our unique mix of serious democratic socialist politics, theory, strategy, alongside an intense engagement with the progressive political movement that we're seeing today, I urge you to head over to www patreon.com slash pundits and become a supporter of this political project today. I talk at length during this episode with Nomiki Konst about the importance of building this independent left media ecosystem, and I mean it from the bottom of my heart. It is absolutely essential that we have an independent media ecosystem in order to support the growing political sentiment, passion, and intensity with which the American public is feeling the burn. Not just the burn. It's not just about Bernie Sanders, the man. He's, he's, an old, he's an old dude, you know? He's an old guy. He's not going to be here forever. We will see a world in the next decade at least uh, that doesn't have a Bernie Sanders in it. And that's, that's terribly sad, folks. I'm sorry to bring you down in the midst of an otherwise lighthearted episode. But it's the truth. We have to build the groundwork. We have to build a foundation to grow this movement, to continue it far, far into the future, many, many decades to come. Because this is a project of at least a generation, if not more, that is democratic socialism. That is radically transforming our economy, our society, our state, our institutions, and and, and ourselves. Um, This is a project that's going to be uh, many years in the making, if not 100 plus years in the making. So... Head over to www.patreon.com slash dead pundits and become a subscriber today. And not only will you be doing the service of supporting independent left media, but you will also get access to our weekly B sides, which are full subscriber only episodes, oftentimes interview episodes. The vast majority of the time, I'm bringing you two guests every week. This is a one man operation and it's a lot of work. Very few other podcasts. Do two interviews per week, particularly when they are a one-man band, as I am. I don't have a producer. I edit my own work. I record in my home studio. I do this all by my damn self, and it's a lot of work. And I need your support in order to continue this project. And uh, if we build this Patreon enough, I'd like to expand it out. I'd like to farm out some of the production. I'd like to farm out some of the editing because that way I can focus my efforts on the politics on the content creation itself to bring you more of that good shit that you've come to know and love and expect from DPS so patreon.com slash dead get access to that b-side and additionally you'll be able to ask uh, some of my guests questions from time to time I solicited questions from patrons for Nomiki which we're going to get to at the end of this episode so if you would like to sit in my interview chair and ask a future guest a question become a patron because you might get the chance all right back to the show there're a lot obviously a lot that remains to be seen here. I think that you know one of the points that Megan Day raised on the show it's it's a you know the Democratic Party is a structurally fragmented coalition. You have not only the insurance executives that stand from you know uh, profiting if people are denied coverage, but you have the people who are denied coverage under this mm-hmm. umbrella. You have not only the people who stand to profit wildly from home foreclosures, the kind of banking executives, uh but you also have the people whose homes are being foreclosed upon. Under the same umbrella in the same coalition, and you know, one would think that the you know the the former and the group that I just mentioned there would sort of flee and go elsewhere. Um, But 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 yeah, it remains to be seen. I think you know the bottom line is we won't ever we won't ever find out if if we don't um, if we don't if we don't try. So let's talk about and you know (laughs) hey I mean that sounds obvious like okay way way to go Adam you know you're right up there with the uh, the no shit Sherlock's at NBC MSNBC (laughs) Uh, but 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 that's that's a relatively new observation like on the left I think a lot of the left had been sort of um, overtaken by this kind of uh, hyper structural macro level analysis of politics and economics and the way that the world is uh, is alleged to work. Um, and a lot of those models have collapsed lately, and it's, it's, it's made, made a lot more of us uh, attuned to the kind of individual institutional dynamics. And I think one of the big mistakes you can make when you're assessing these sort of structural phenomenon is to assume that the people in control know what the fuck they're doing.
1: That's right. That's right.
0: <laughs> and as you just mentioned, and as I've learned increasingly over the past several years being involved in this process, most of them do not. <laughs> so, so let's start there. Iowa was the uh, one of the biggest you know, um, examples of, of, of recent memory here of, of how that sort of played out. What happened in Iowa? And, and let's yeah. just talk about and contextualize it in terms of the, the kind of struggles and battles that are ahead for the Sanders campaign.
1: Uh, well, what happened, if you were listening to Joy Reid, um, she thinks that it was Jim Zogby and me and Nina Turner and Jane Klebb <laughs> who are Jill Stein supporters yeah. um, that we, we overtook the entire Unity reform commission and on our mission to end primaries and support uh, the white cause of replacing all primaries, all 55 primaries with caucuses. Or 50, <laughs> I should say 52 primaries. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's not what happened, but that's what she, you know, in her very Jerry Reed way um, was pushing out there with talking points being delivered to her. Via tweet or text or whatever, by near a tandem, um, you know that 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 didn't happen. That wasn't anything on the table. We didn't have we don't have the power. The you your York didn't have the power of anything, frankly. But we definitely didn't have the power to determine whether or not a state was a caucus or a primary. That's determined by a state legislature as a law. So, with that being said, um, what we did have the power to incentivize with the parties uh, was a more more effective process in in the past. Iowa, Nevada, at one point Washington State, other caucus states. Uh, they, you know, there's a lot of criticisms about, about them being accessible, about them releasing the numbers um, in a transparent way. In the past, you know, in, in Iowa in particular, um, people were being left out of of the caucus locations uh, at seven o'clock because the lines were so long. So we had no sense of how many people showed up. They were being denied at the door. They were pushed away. Go to a different location. Um, it was chaos in 2016, and the locations were smaller, many locations were smaller in 2016 than they were in 2008 with Obama, So even though they were expecting record turnout. So I think from our side, and I think from the people on the commission who had worked in Iowa, whether it was Jen O'Malley-Dillon or uh, the former Iowa chair, um, or she, she was a chair, a vice chair, I think, um, there were people who had experience in Iowa and other caucus locations. Emmy Ruiz. That wanted to see a real democratic process. They wanted to see the numbers released because it was just easier for campaigns to understand. Um, and they also just wanted to deal with accessibility. So whether it's, you know, setting up satellite locations. Now, where it went wrong, it went wrong because the Democrat, the DNC, Tom Perez specifically, the, not the DNC as a whole, Tom Perez decided, you know, in, in the weeks prior that uh, it was a great idea to shove this, this app this app created by cronies down the throats of the caucus, uh, states with caucuses and the state party chairs and the state parties, you know, as, as broken as some of them are pushed back and said no. And then they tested it and it didn't work. And then they pushed back. But because we live in this group, I don't know if it's groupthink or I scratch your back, you scratch my back. At the end of the day, there might be groupthink, but all roads lead to somebody who has a strategy. And I, I will say that. There are definitely people who are, are pushing out a strategy and it might just be to make money. But, you know, this app, this shadow app that is part of this, this ecosystem, you know, that this, this complex of app developed. I don't know what they are. They're like a nonprofit, a super PAC. I still can't figure it out, but it is actually very similar to a lot of the other, um, grifty ideas. That happened from the consultant. class. Isn't
0: mm-hmm. that clever? Every every time somebody comes out with a report about ah, this is what they are. They're actually a super PAC. They're like, no, 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 we're not a super PAC. Okay, so you're a this then. They're like, no, 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 we're not that either. And it's like, you know, <laughs> so so what are you right? Like, so it's it's just this kind of denialism that sort of uh, works to just confuse people until people just give up and stop asking. Right.
1: Uh, so no, what have, you, what have right. you
0: discovered now since we're a couple of weeks on? Who who's behind this? What? Um, I mean, is this a is this kind of a a ploy to sabotage the entire thing? Is this just kind of um, cronyism and ineptitude what is, or or a mix thereof?
1: I'm not, I'm not sure if it was strategic. You know, the rigging was there. Um, I think a lot of it was cronyism, cronyism and ineptitude. You know, these are the people that, that hand delivered you Hillary's election win, right? Um, and you yeah. had the best data in the world, <laughs> the best minds from all the campaigns, <laughs> You know, these are consultants who want to make money. How, how much are they focused on, on the details? You know, one thing to keep in mind here, and I think your audience will appreciate this, is if you look back to the early 70s, when this, this new way, um, the, the DLC mindset uh, came about and really transcended the party globally, not, not just here in the States. Oh, absolutely. Um, when they started welcoming the lobbyists, and they, they literally pushed out, actually pushed out union members from the DNC. And the DNC shifted away from being a, a workers' party and focusing more on competing with Republicans. And, and this is also a time when ads started to be a big part, a big industry, um, when there was more than three channels. And so it was it was part of getting the message out on behalf of Democrats. And their excuse back then was, we need to raise money. We need to welcome the lobbyists because that's how we're going to compete with the Republicans who are buying all this ad time. But that being said, it was also the beginning of of labor unions and you know under it's being under attack and there was nobody to defend them so when you have over the last 35 40 years um a a party that is becoming more centralized and especially in the last 15 years a party that has ignored developing um state parties and you have unions which used to be a big part of the organizing on the ground in local uh with local parties and with local candidates as the Koch brothers are attacking unions, you're, you're not the talent pool. Think about that. You have less of a talent pool because the DNC was only focused on presidentials and they weren't interested in winning elections and cultivating um you know campaign talent from the ground up. And unions were weakened, and so they were a big part of that too, training folks. So you know, we see this on the left, without a doubt, that there's there's not enough talent out there um, to fight for all these people running right now. But I think it's also just indicative of the entire Democratic Party. You know, how many people lucked out in 2008 on the Obama campaign and then were able to, to use that that title that they had uh, to start their own firms and make literally millions of dollars. And so I just I think that, you know, people fail their way to the top um, or might win, you know, in some elections. But it's not necessarily indicative of their talent.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's an attempt to reboot that DLC energy. That happened in the mid '80s, you know that 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 gave us Bill Clinton, right? I mean, it, it, listeners of my show will know we've talked about this at length, and it probably deserves another episode once the kind of dust settles here from the the horse race, which is so important to cover and, and kind of come to grips with. But uh, you know what what was known as the Third Way and Blairism in the UK started over here. It was hatched in in Arkansas and, and in places like that across the uh, across the country in the DLC and these folks who were triangulating. You know this kind of new emerging coalition in the in the in the in the ashes upon the ashes, I should say, of the the labor movement, which was you know all but smashed by then. Um, and and we're seeing an attempt to do something very similar. I, I, similar. I really love that post Obama framing that you just that you just did there. I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about that. And and thank God for Bernie Sanders. Am I right? I mean, because what else would be in the way to stop him?
1: I'm, oh, I'm not Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> <Literally>. <laughs>
0: yeah. I'm, yeah, no. So you just blew my mind there a little bit, you know. I mean, obviously, thank God for Bernie Sanders for so many reasons. But but if not for Sanders and this movement, you know, it's something to catalyze this movement. I should say, right? Um, uh, there would be nothing to stop these these Obama drones, you know.
1: That's right. I mean, they're they're data driven. Um, they're uh, with exception to maybe like David Axelrod. I think I think David Axelrod is brilliant. He also isn't from that era. He's not a uh a, you know a, a Harvard educated Mackenzie. You know, robot. He's not. That's not who he. That's the kind of candidate. You like, sure, but it's not who he is. He was a reporter at one point. And, you know, this is. He's very strategic and smart, and and is not expressing how he's backing Pete Buttigieg. But <laughs> that's a side note. <laughs> um, you know, there there is something to be said about folks who have worked the machine, and if you look at the states where like a political machine does exist there are states where unions are still strong. And so there's a real battle happening there on both sides. Um, New York state is a perfect example. I mean, uh, unions are imperfect. We want to have a strong labor movement, but uh, there are several unions who are revealing themselves right now as, as they did in 2016. Their, their, their heads are the heads of the unions are more concerned with dealing with the status quo. And, um, and I think that excuse is, you know, it's, it's not working. I mean, Um, clearly it's not working because the membership seems to still support Bernie Sanders, but it's not working because, you know, the alternative at this point is Bloomberg. And do you think that Bloomberg is going to negotiate you a better deal? No, he's going to annihilate you.
0: Unbelievable. Yeah. That's the ship that launched a thousand, um, you know, local level union election fights. Right. And this is so crucial. I've, I've talked about these on my show quite a bit that one of the things that, you know, we're talking about the kind of, um, the the results of twenty sixteen extend far beyond just the party or other types of electoral considerations. Of course, the Unity Reform Commission, you know, is as a part of that, but also these these battles that are taking place at the local, state, and national level of some of these unions to challenge the the idiocy and the hypocrisy of these moves by by their, you know, their so-called leadership. Um, who doesn 't seem to give a shit about him at all, um, and it 's becoming far more obvious, and so the the tensions and the contradictions are building as the good old stodgy you know dusty marxist would say in 2020 um, and I love to you love to see it you do let 's talk a little bit about nevada what what's what um you know it seems that the the rest of the candidates have all but seeded that race. To Sanders how does that bow? there have been a number of pe there's a piece that came out on Politico Forgive me, I forget the author, but the the essence of, of it is is a lot of people who are willing to talk and in, in private are are privately admitting that Sanders is running away with this thing yeah um i mean the the reality is becoming more obvious by the day, and I have to pinch myself every time I wake up every day exactly. um, a little personal <laughs> reflection from you would be nice on that because you're somebody who's been very close to this for many years, but then also beyond that sort of what is the path right now and what could stand in the way? Let's kind of have a general broad conversation and then we'll get to more kind of specific concerns.
1: Well, so there's, there's two things. Um, I think I would be concerned with anybody who collects delegates at this point who can uh, negotiate those delegates. If we do get to a point where, um, Bernie doesn't take a plurality and, and carry the nomination. Right. I think, you know, I just interviewed today. Um, it's going to be up next week on Monday. Uh, but I just interviewed Larry Cohen, who was a senior advisor to Bernie's campaign in 2016. He was the vice chair of the New Reform Commission, and he's on the Rules Committee for the DNC. Uh, he's the only, the, the lone one that has been appointed, uh, that is a Bernie supporter. But he, he was playing it out saying that as of right now, uh, you know, he thinks it's about 52% chance that Bernie will have enough delegates to go into the convention. Now, say he doesn't have enough, um, that's when it's, you know, you have to pay attention to a Pete Buttigieg, who will definitely have a few delegates, as we know from from the last two races, um, and anybody else who collects delegates along the way that that can uh, urge the delegates to support the candidate of their choice, or uh, that delegates can choose on their own really depends on, on the campaign. That's a concern, sure. Now, what I'm more concerned with at this point is, why are people going to be staying in the race that know that they don't have a path forward? Right now, I mean, this could change, but right now, Elizabeth Warren has zero delegates, right? Or one delegate, something like that, right? But if you're collecting so few and you're supposedly on the side of the movement and you know there's, there's arguments to be made that like her support is more wealthy, what we're seeing right now, which was reflected in that political piece, is that we're past the point of the left base needing to be unified. This is about Democrats realizing the way that you defeat Trump is with Bernie Sanders. These are about solid D Democrats realizing that michael bloomberg is bad for the party these are people who who probably despise bernie sanders but fear michael bloomberg and so this is why i you know you have to ask yourself what are these candidates doing in the race now if they're not just being mercenaries now is it good to have people who in the race yes i don't know exactly what point it's going to be bad i still haven't figured that out but yeah it's good for, for now, in my opinion. I mean, there are probably a lot of different opinions on this. Same thing with Biden. But Bloomberg is, is he's just so, he has the money, he has the organizational support, he has the propaganda. To take this all the way to the end, the only thing he doesn't have is democracy. And there are people who still believe in, in some form of democracy, even if it's weighed towards the establishment, they still believe in a two-party system, frankly. In fact, you know, Bernie's not a, not a Democrat, but at least he's bringing in Democrats and he's using Democrats and he's talking about the democratic party. Whereas Michael Bloomberg, it's about him. And so, um, you know, I'm, I said on my show today, I I had a really tough conversation with, uh, with Elizabeth Warren. (laughs) She wasn't listening, but I just said, you know, I, I, I wanted to support you, but this is, this is, you're a mercenary. You're a mercenary for Michael Bloomberg. How dare you tweet out that Michael Bloomberg's horrible when you know you are the you are literally enabling him at this point. And that I mean, I, I think democracy is great. And spoiler um, ideology, you know, the, the messaging around spoilers can be toxic at times, but just as rank choice voting can facilitate sometimes, you know, no, no system is perfect, right? But ranked choice voting, as we all say, like, wouldn't it be great if we had it? Well, if you actually you know, look at places where they have it, if there's a political machine in place, it actually gives more of an opportunity for the political machine to stack things. So we have to take all these things into consideration. She is being a spoiler because now we have an oligarch in the race who is, is just going to kill democracy in totality. Um, so I think we have to pressure these people. We have to do it in a, you know, a Bernie grow way, I guess, because n- nothing we say <laughs> it's <Yeah>. always negative.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. We're always going to be the, the attackers and never, um, you know, on the defense, which we are every other day. Now, let's talk about, I mean, I, I, do, do you see Warren back? I mean, this is off script. Do you see Warren backing Sanders? Because at this point, I don't. I really don't. And I don't know what's going to happen with her. I don't know which side she's going to fall on. But, I mean, the the way that she's poisoning the well right now, um, her defeat speech um, in New Hampshire was, I don't have a lot of faith in Elizabeth Warren. Even I was astonished um, at the venom that came yeah. out of her mouth for, you know, in front of her supporters. Now, fortunately, I don't think most of her supporters will buy it. Right. Uh, that's, you know, that's the benefit here. But her as a, as a personality, I just don't see her throwing her weight behind the Sanders campaign at this point.
1: I think it was a really bad move on her part. And what she's revealed in this race is that she is not politically sophisticated. She's made a bad move after bad move after bad move. And at this point, it really comes down to her, you know, her personal interest. Do you want to be? a lioness in the Senate. Do you want to be a progressive hero still? Well, you're really not making that case right now. You're losing this progressive support that even people like myself, you know, I didn't want to go negative on her. I I really didn't throughout this entire race. I wanted to stay. I believe in democracy, but we, I didn't expect Michael Bloomberg to come in. (laughs) That's a factor that you can't control. So. Billionaire
0: is going to do what a billionaire is going to do, I guess. (laughs) They just buy their (laughs) way in.
1: Exactly. So oh. I think she's she's got to have a, a, you know, come to Jesus moment or or whoever she prays to, um, to to think about, you know, how does she preserve her reputation moving forward? Uh, and I think the best way would be bow out and endorse Bernie. And she might even be able to negotiate something with him still. But if she keeps it up this way, she's not going to, you know, I, I, she's a mercenary. And I don't know what she gets out of
0: it. She's just doubling down. I mean, I, look. I mean, this is kind of this isn't very sophisticated, high level political analysis. But there been a lot of there's been a lot of talk about her PMC credentials, the fact that she is of and for and by and represents the professional managerial class, and there's a certain kind of like professional like cruelty, cultural cruelty that's 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 hammered into this class. And I'm sure you've seen it firsthand. Like, Lord knows I have, being the types of people that you've had to rub elbows with. Um, there's this kind of just um, cruelty, this, this will to power, this, this um, almost just kind of irrational and insane drive to, to dominance that is instilled in people who are in that class. I mean, she's a graduate of Harvard Law, right? I mean, this is, right. this is, this is who she is. And, and so if it seems irrational from a political strategic point of view, it's far more rational at the individual personal level. But you, but you hate to see it. You know, as much as I, I despise and loathe this person now, you still hate to see it.
1: Uh, no, it's, it's, there's, there's something to be said about, um, state schools <laughs> yeah. as, a, as a university of Arizona, you know, I'm going Preach. to interview Noam Chomsky there in a couple of weeks and I'm just excited. Cause it's like, you think about that people who, who choose to teach at state schools, no offense to people if you, if you don't teach at a state school, but, um, there, there is a different culture. Like, I, this is foreign to me. When I entered politics and I met all these, like, Harvard, you know, uh, elite you know, college, just, I, 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 I'm not used to that. I'm used to people, right?
0: Yeah. yeah. University of Arizona, is that right?
1: Yeah. University okay. of Arizona. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I went to
0: Virginia Tech, good, good, solid so, state school in the South. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, exactly. and the the people out there who are who are private school elite types uh, in my audience and certainly my guests and friends of the show who are professors, um, they know better than anyone because they're viewed as sort of outsiders. Uh, these kind of like right. foreigners, you know, uh, invading. Uh, yeah. Yeah. This strange territory. Um, so you think that you think there's something to that with Warren and her supporters?
1: I do. I mean, it, you see their income back brackets. you see their education levels. it's not everybody, but course support, I think um, it's very like New York Times. I mean, if you live in New York um and you follow New York politics and citywide elections, they the most likely turnout area in in all of New York City is the most educated area and the most that's why the New York Times endorsement is very um, influential. And so I think, there are pockets like that all over the country. You know, those who read the New York Times, maybe they don't follow the nuances of politics. Maybe they watch MSNBC and Rachel, maybe their thing is they read the New York Times every day and then they, they, um, or at least the Sunday Times and they watch Rachel Maddow and they're working people. Um, that's, I mean, in the old days that used to be enough to be very informed, but we live in this corporate media environment. Um, you know, we have tribes and, and different ecosystems and i think something about our generation is it's a little bit different um even like the elite private school people uh if you don't come from a wealthy background you went to a private school or you went to an ivy league um you still probably suffer with student loans so you're more likely to be receptive to these other messages uh i think that's her that's her issue and and the people that i know that support and granted it's it's a small universe but granted, we're dealing with democratic primaries and these are more likely People that are more likely to vote and more informed voters. So in my ecosystem, the people that support Elizabeth Warren um, are definitely uh, people who either went to an Ivy League or want to pretend they went to, an Ivy League. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to be in those circles, if that makes sense.
0: Climbers, climbers. We know them we yeah. all know him yeah let's let's move on from that I'm, I'm sorry i went there because i got nothing to say nothing nice to say about warren i'm just i have no journalistic <laughs> integrity here no Mickey, i can say what i want i'm just a layabout podcaster you have to play nice and and worry about what others may hear or not hear although i don't, I don't think <laughs> most of your opponents tune into dps um <laughs> let's get although they should they really should um Absolutely. let's get, let's get into some of the patron questions i have some some questions here from patrons if you're not a patron and you are listening you shame on you you should be a patron of dps there's never been a better time to be a part of this movement. Uh, there aren't a lot of shows out there that blend this kind of uh, democratic socialist wave along and t- while taking very seriously this kind of more progressive institutionally based politics. And um, we have to support this ecosystem. And Nomiki, you have a, a Patreon yourself. People should support hers as well. And, I do. Yeah. Yeah. Tell, tell <laughs> people about it and, and how they can support it. Uh,
1: you're much better at pitching this than I am. It's patreon.com slash the Nomiki Show, N O M I K I. Uh, we are a weekly show but I have been doing interviews in between um several times a week just because we've had so much DNC uh crises like there's people needed to understand like how the Iowa caucus works so I suddenly you know <laughs> I had to do interviews throughout the week um so you're getting a lot of content <laughs> for yep. the patreon uh, membership prices right now um and Somebody we also to have to explain the stuff yep. exactly and then we also have um, a live show if I can pitch that i we're doing something on election night on Super Tuesday in Los Angeles, and it is election night coverage in front of a live show with uh, Michael Brooks, with Alona Minkowski, uh, Nando Vila, LA Charger Justin Jackson, David Dayen, uh Francesca Fi- Fiorentini, and Lucy Flores. Yeah, that's yeah. everybody. Yeah. Huge show.
0: A lot of DPS uh, alums, uh, uh, alumni, alumnuses, <laughs> alumni, alumni. alumni, alumnuses, alumni, alumni, alumnuses, alumnuses. <laughs> You're great. Alumni. Help me. Alumni. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of DPS alumni on that on that stage. And let me tell you, I saw, if you don't mind me, if, if I may be so bold Amiki, I saw the flyer for that event. And I told Brooks and I believe I, I texted Nando and told him as well. I said, everyone on that flyer looks like a total snack. I need a better headshot. <laughs>
1: I know I, I did the flyer. You did. You did the flyer. I did it on my, so oh, well, yeah. you
0: chose some good photos. I got to say, they gave
1: them to me. Because,
0: I mean, especially I mean, the men look dapper as hell. I mean, yeah. it's it's on, I need a better headshot. I mean, I'm a photographer. <laughs> <laughs> what is my excuse? This is ridiculous. Exactly. I, mean, I could do it myself. Anyway, people in the LA or, you know, Southern California should check that out for sure. And if not tune into your, to her show on, on YouTube. I mean, I, I say this all the time and I mean it, we need a thriving progressive lefty uh, media podcast commentator ecosystem. And, um, it's, you know, that we got to grow this pie. And, um, I think that we're, we're, we're doing it and, uh, it's great to see you join. You have a very uh, important niche to fill.
1: Thank you. I appreciate uh, that that. Very
0: few others can, can, to be honest. And that's, that brings us to our patron questions. One of the benefits of being a patron of DPS is that you get to ask my guests questions. You get to sit in my chair and uh pick the brains of my brilliant guests so let's get on to that really quickly before i let you go here i know you had a long day let's talk process um What's good questions here, David Erdman? We can address this question and talk more explicitly. Um, if Bernie gets fifty percent plus one of the delegates in the primaries, will the DNC just have to accept him, or are there still some fine print rules they can pull out only for Sanders? This is a, just a very sort of sort of specific question pitched at a level of of um, you know awareness that most of us have, which is just kind of like. Very, very, very ground base level. Uh, No offense, David, but I'm just like you, my friend. I have no idea how this happens. How will this process go down um, at the convention when it comes time?
1: So he needs to reach nineteen hundred and ninety one delegates. Those are pledged delegates, earned delegates, um, a.k.a. not super delegates, if that clears it up even more so. Uh, so he has to hit that number. And I think going into the convention, we'll get a good sense of, of whether or not we're getting close to that or he's about to hit it um, based on the states leading up to the convention. I mean, we probably will know uh, pretty early in the process, I would say, you know, I'm trying to think of what maybe by April, maybe by the before the New York primary, which is in April. Um, you know, the, the reason why I am hesitant to say like wholeheartedly that he's going to get it is just. You know, you don't know what kind of shenanigans are going to happen. We whether or not Michael Bloomberg is going to collect some delegates because every he needs to get um, buy,
0: he's going to buy some delegates. Let's be clear he's going to buy some delegates. Yeah.
1: Well, he's, he's buying the super delegates, we know yeah, that, and, and he mayors. might buy other people's delegates if they decide to drop out. <laughs> right. So keep in mind, you know, that's a factor here. Um, but I mean, at the end of the day, he has to hit 1991, and if he doesn't hit it, then we have a problem. If he does hit it, we're good. I mean, what can they do at the convention if he hits it? Not a lot. I mean, it it would be. That would be utter chaos. And I, I just I just can't and, and the alternative would be you know, the whole point is they don't they want it to be divided. They don't want somebody to have the nomination. Meaning, if there's some sort of some sort of strategy to like to, to rig the election against Bernie, it would mean that they want um they don't want him to have the number of delegates needed to get to the convention. The, I don't know how many of those people who had those interests in mind were aware that Michael Bloomberg I uh, was interested. I actually think Michael Bloomberg is this is part of this mechanism of of Clintonian revenge, and I don't know if the rest of the people in the race are on that same team. I don't know if if the rest of the people in the DNC who may despise Bernie are that angry at Bernie to 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 push um, revenge out in that way. And I say that because. Uh, Michael Bloomberg's team is like the worst Hillary people, the worst Clinton people from the Clinton White House. Howard Wolfson. My God, these are like Cuomo's allies. They're just reckless, ruthless. I mean, they're just they they don't they don't have any um, value for democracy. Uh, They're not even woke. I don't know why they're in the Democratic Party other than probably wanting their hands in both pots. So to answer the question, he needs to hit 1991.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, yeah. I mean, if I, look, I, I don't have I don't have the energy right now to put into my my um my Bloomberg rant. Um, I'll do that some some other time when I'm more caffeinated, perhaps uh, mildly intoxicated. We'll see. But uh, I mean the, the 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 this is let's just let's just say that the last couple of weeks, the last week especially, has been revelatory, and and we're finding out who's who, aren't we? We are. We're finding out who can be bought and purchased, uh, aren't we? That's it's it's wild. It's a wild world we live in, Namiki. But honestly, you know, God bless Bloomberg for doing this because he's doing us a service going forward. And uh, it's it's so undeniably bad. <laughs> uh, English, the English language is failing me to describe this. So it's bad. <laughs> Good three letter word. He, um, he's
1: pulling back the curtain yes, on yes on the process, and you know it's. People didn't even know what the process was five years ago. Um, I was a DNC member. I know more about the DNC now than when I was a DNC member uh, pretty much a decade ago. So, um, you know, they, nobody really, I had this, I was obsessed on the, you know, reform commission with banning conflicts of interest. And I couldn't, even on the commission, I couldn't get ever, I mean, they were like, okay, that's cute. That's your pet project. But I really believe that that was the root issue in the Democratic Party. So much so that I lost that resolution. Whereas they they gave us room on other resolutions, but not with that one. And what was the issue in Iowa? A conflict of interest. So this stuff is being revealed, unfortunately, through process. Um, But, you know, we, we know what those those dividing lines are. They're becoming very clear.
0: Right. That's right. That's right. Let's talk. um, Let's see who, who's up next. Let's do Patrick O'Connor. We'll just, these are sort of all over the place, but it'll help guide us our, our discussion more specifically here. Patrick O'Connor says mad props on your channel. Patrick yeah. loves the show. He's watched all of your interviews.
1: Oh, mine. Oh, I thought no. his. <laughs> Yours. No, I mean. no,
0: well, both. But uh, yeah, Patrick's a, a good. He straddles that line that I was just talking about in terms of loving, lapping up that sort of hyper intellectual, good, solid, democratic, socialist, theoretical content, but also getting to the nitty gritty of process and institutions that you offer. So I love that. We need more leftists like that. Can she explain the structure of the Democratic convention? So you talked about delegates and all the rest of it. How will some of the new rules impact uh, that this this convention uh, compared to the last one? Um, we talked about how many delegates he'll need. Um, he's hoping for an amlo style crushing lead, which will silence all of the uh, all opposition.
1: That's what he needs.
0: A lot of speculation. I mean, again, you know, you can't, you can't you can't, there's a, there's a, there's a good, there's a good, what is the saying? Nomiki? It's something about, you know, you can't pull out a tough win if you don't have the numbers to begin with or something, you know, they, or they can't, they can't undermine you via right. whatever rat fuckery or what have you, you know, if, if you don't, if you're not in a position to win in the first place, right. I, I suck at figures of speech no, audience knows that, but, but it's that, true.
1: That's true. And that's actually going back to David Axelrod, a uh, second shout out, strangely enough, <laughs> not, not, I'm not a fan <laughs> of his, let me just say that. Um, but, He makes him. He's perceptive at times, and immediately after Donald Trump won the election, uh, when very few were willing to criticize Hillary, he did say, "You know, even if Russia—this is before everybody got the memo on Russia, right? In the establishment, he said, even if Russia did intervene, it should have never been so close that 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 what little they did um, would make a difference." And I think that's that should be our mantra right now: is that um, no, they're not brilliant people; Uh, they're not unified. Uh, They have multiple strategies working at once, probably from different people. But at the end of the day, if Bernie is winning with this huge coalition and he has a great lead, then the rat fuckery doesn't work. Um, And
0: And that's something we can control. I mean, that's the important thing here. It's it's important that we don't feel disempowered. I think my audience knows that, but I'm pushing back a lot against some of the more kind of conspiratorial approaches to Iowa and and elsewhere because conspiracy disempowers people. We need to know that we're in charge here. We're in control. We have an uphill battle. But that uh, but in, we have to position ourselves and, you know, in a way such that they can't uh, swoop in and, and and take this from us.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, they, they will try. Your, your opponent will try. I mean, whether I think Pete, his campaign decided to cry about that, that poll. I absolutely think that was a trick that was up their sleeves. But that's not necessarily like from the top. That's just a candidate trying, you know, pulling tricks out. And so if you're running against multiple candidates, and there's a lot of people who want to take you down, they're all going to try to take you down. And so you have to win by huge margins. And that means you have to pay attention to to rural voters. That means you have to pay attention to older uh, progressive voters that you may have taken for granted, frankly, the way that Hillary Clinton took for granted the progressive base. I mean, in this primary, Bernie's not winning with that that older white coalition that he had in 2016 for many reasons. You know, there's more candidates. but the polls were reflecting that he was, and so something's wrong when um, you know that young people are not going to be as 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 reflected in the polls. He's still doing well with young people; they're turning out at record rates, but the older people are not. So he has to focus on that um, that voting block a little bit more, and maybe maybe toning down the woke stuff a bit uh, because I think that the, the nouveau, you know, extremely online woke language can turn off. You know, our, our parents' generation that may not be as receptive.
0: Right, right. It doesn't mean that we have, of course, obviously have to ignore those issues. It's just a, it's a messaging rhetorical strategy, right? And, and that's been taking me to my next question. A number of commentators, especially journalists that I brought on this show, have been um, cautiously critical, supportively critical of some of the Bernie surrogate um, circuits, so B- Bernie surrogate types, Um they they're said to lack discipline they're said to have you know sort of unified message they certainly don't play by the rules uh of that that are have long been established you know by campaigns in terms of messaging and all the rest of it um at what point do you think that's been a liability at what point do you think um you know they need to tighten tighten up messaging and things like that going forward it seems like some of that has happened um it's hard to know what right it's it's what it's like the, it's hard to it's hard to recognize an absence of something, right? <laughs> yeah. Because it's just not there, right? So you don't know what's not being said because it's not being said, right? Um, but it seems that they've had a little bit tighter discipline. What, what do you see there going forward?
1: Listen, in 2016, we were learning as we went. There was uh, – the messaging department was scrappy, resourceful. I would go – I would you know, get a phone call from CNN and some crisis would hit and I'd say, oh my God, what should I say? And they would answer. Sometimes they have advice. Sometimes they'd say, you know best because it was, we were building as we went. Um, that's not a good excuse for 2020. I think 2020, they, they clearly have the money. Um, I think they could probably pull communications support from other campaigns at this point, um, or definitely some firms. Uh, he's, he's likely to be the nominee if it isn't, you know Bloomberg, unfortunately. Um, so they, they really need to run a, a tight ship, a strong operation. They need to have surrogates who reflect um, the demos that need to be reflected in, in in the voting electorate. I mean, who do we know we have? Okay, so let's let's start to focus on other electorates. I mean, I'd like to see more union leaders uh, speaking out on stage the way they were in two thousand sixteen. I'd like to see um, you know it's great to have average everyday people on stage. That's amazing and powerful, but there are notable people out there that are, are older that support Bernie. And I think those, those are valuable. I mean, it's, it's AOC is fantastic, but even AOC's district, Trump won, you know, I live, I live in Queens, right? i not her whole district. She was the Bronx too, but it's not, yes, it, there is a progressive. Um, it is an extremely progressive district, but it is also on the flip side, a very conservative district, a very trumpian district. So, you know, we have to understand that the electorate is diverse and you know, he's made tremendous strides when it comes to support from people of color, um from older demographics and he always did well with younger younger people of color. But I think, you know, there's some truth to that. There's uh there it needs to be tighter. I still think so. Um I think the comms department could be strengthened and I think um You know, one thing I'll say, one specific criticism without going down the rabbit hole, because I I love everybody on the team. I love everybody. It's a surrogate. I truly do. Um, But I think they need to be more open to criticism from friends and allies. I sometimes hear that they're being shut out. And I I think that um, because you can have, you know, groupthink, that's what happens on campaigns, especially the second time around. Um, I think the other aspect of it is, uh, you know, enough with the petty fights. Stop fighting with people on Twitter. You, you got to think big. You're the winners. You're you're the nominees. Um, fighting with a, a random blogger is not empowering, unless you're trying to make example of something. But, you know, if you're a surrogate, you got to think big. Um, leave the fighting for cable news debaters, uh, For for the movement. They're doing a great job of it. And that's, I think, what what Bloomberg effectively did with his press release yesterday in, in naming surrogates and, and campaign staff and their specific tweets, not that there was anything wrong with what they said, frankly, but um, it's ammunition and to illustrate a bigger point that they're trying to make.
0: Right. It's opening so, the door. Don't 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 give them anything. Go. Don't give them, you, you give them an inch. They take a mile. Don't give them an inch. Yeah, a lot, a lot, there's a lot. There's an entire show there, and perhaps it will be better better held as a retrospective of sorts. So maybe we'll have you back on to talk about that once the dust settles. We'll see. Uh, let's get to a, just a couple more questions before I, I obviously want to let you go. This is going a little bit long. Um, let's see. Whew, so, so many great – I mean, these questions are so good, but they require an episode unto themselves. Let's <laughs> see.
1: Oh, and just while you're doing that, yeah, for, for anybody who is interested in understanding how the DNC is structured – uh, definitely check out my show on YouTube or on Patreon because we do an entire episode on that. Um, there is one with Jim Zombie and then and then you'll see in the titles which ones are focused on the DNC because it is if that's actually a very big conversation
0: yeah yeah for sure again uh, I brought you on also not not just to talk with you but to highlight your work a, a, as a whole so people should oh, definitely be
1: thank definitely you. That
0: out. I mean that I don't know maybe I'm just not like self serving enough maybe I should just be all about me but I just I, <laughs> I really want this fucking thing to grow no Mickey yeah. I really need, I, I mean I believe that it's a I, be, I have the, that sort of like it's oh, pardon the kind of Ted talky buzzwordy bullshit but like <laughs> that growth mindset the left needs to have that like all of us do better when we're all doing better right totally. and, and and this kind wow. of um the way that some of the clicks have formed uh, you know post 2016 in the podcast sort of independent left media sector like we really need to get over that um and and i'm i'm doing my part we'll see uh
1: <laughs> no i think you're right it's, it's like we have to have solidarity We're we're not ratings driven so we don't it's not like, you know, the Rachel Maddow show is up against Bill O'Reilly and they're up against whoever's on CNN at that time, Chris Cuomo, you know, that's like a real competition because you're competing for the same viewers at the same time. We are not.
0: <laughs> yeah. As you mentioned off air, you're just like me where you run out of things to listen to about Wednesday, which is yes. why I like to put out some episodes on Fridays because by Friday, Lord knows I don't have anything to listen to anymore. Um, you know, God forbid I have a long drive on Saturday cause I've got to listen to, you know, I don't know, uh, Sports or something, which is fine. I mean, you know, I do my normie things too. I don't say <laughs> politics all day long. Uh, okay, let's get to one more question here at least. Um, this is a kind of cynical question. This comes from NYC MA Hole. <laughs> A solid class trader in the mergers and acquisitions sector in New York City, in your in your great city, Uh, good good friend of mine, good friend of the show. It's somewhat cynical, but there's a serious nugget there. He says, "How can we convince Bernie to denounce the DNC if they steal the nomination at a broker convention?" Of course, he's being a little (laughs) tongue in cheek there, but uh, he's he's a troll in the best senses of the word. Uh, What 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 do you think going forward? I mean, Bernie has has not. Come out swinging when it comes to some of some of this DNC stuff in a way that I think a lot of his supporters would like to see. And going back to the the British context here, really quickly, that was one of Corbyn's downfalls. In fact, I even think, um, if I'm not mistaken, a couple of the Corbynites who are still waging battle inside of the party have had their come to Jesus moments and, and said to themselves, "You know, I love Corbyn. Uh, I will I will go to the wall for that man." Uh, but in hindsight, I see now that that he didn't fight hard enough and he's just too good of a guy. He just couldn't go to the mat when it was required because he's just too, too pure of a human. (laughs) He doesn't have it in him. Um, he's too fucking angelic. Uh, what do you think Bernie will do going forward? If some of this, this rat fuckery continues?
1: Well, I think some of that is actually indicative. It's not just indicative who he is as a person, right? He's the one who, um, you know dismisses criticism sometimes and 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 really apologize i i don't believe in apologizing i think that he you know could be a little bit more of a politician and pivot and go back to his key issues especially around the Bernie bro narrative you know these are working people that are supporting bernie sanders and you're just erasing them all uh because they believe in in, in medicare for all and you know they they're in student their student loans they're buried in student loans or they've lost their homes whatever the issue is um with that being said, he's also somebody that did not grow up in a party environment. He's, um, you know, he's an independent. He, I, I think, I'm, I've never actually asked him this, but I think one of the reasons why he decided to be an independent in, in Congress and the Senate is he didn't have to play the games of going out there and fundraising for, um, for, for the, the Democratic Party and relying on them for support because, you know, he wanted to be somebody who, who was independent, I mean, literally independent, um, of, of the democratic party class within the structures of the Senate. I could be wrong. I mean, he's still caucused with the Democrats, but, um, and I think that they hold that against him. I think that's where some of the, the anger towards Bernie Sanders is is from the, from the status quo, um, the elected officials is, you know, this, we all had to go out there and, be good Democrats and raise money for the crappy Democrats or whatever. We're, we're part of the team and he is not. So with that, I think he also doesn't know, um, the nuances of the rat fuckery. And I, you know, he has had people on his team like Larry Cohen or Jim Zogby, or I guess even myself, um, to an extent who are more familiar with the rat fuckery because we grew up in States where that's you, you know, you're around that, <laughs> so you just have a yeah, no bar. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Larry's from Pennsylvania, um, and he was a union, you know, union president for years, and and Jim has been in the DNC, you know, for for twenty five, thirty years, something like that. Oh, it's gloves
0: off in a union baby. I mean, I, yep. I I've sat in some bargaining rounds, and I've run for you know uh executive <laughs> council at my local, and so on and so forth, and if you can't take the heat in that, in that environment, then, you know, get out of the kitchen. Uh, and Cohen's gotta be a fighter and I, I hope to, I, I'm glad to see that he's there. So you, you do see though that, um, this movement is bringing a little bit more of a pugilist kind of uh, spirit to it in, in 2020 then.
1: I hope so. Um, I don't know who's doing their delicate counting. I read this Politico article and it, I felt, I, I did feel a little concern, um, over, their preparation for a, a battle at the convention. Um, you know, there are only so many people who understand the nuances of the DNC and who, only so many people who understand, who know all the DNC right. members.
0: Right? Do they know what know? to prepare for? I mean, they know that there's going to be a battle, but they do. Do they know, do they have the outlines, the map, the terrain in order to, 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 you know, think about where we might want to place our troops, you know, to, to extend that kind of war battle metaphor.
1: I think he has a smart, um, a smart team, you know, strategically a smart team in the inner circle. But I think they're closed. Um and, and I, I I'm worried about that because, you know, there are a lot of folks who run Team Bernie in 2016 that are not on Team Bernie in 2020. And I think there's some institutional knowledge that could be brought over. Um, you know, maybe they they were learning as they went in twenty sixteen, but they definitely have more knowledge today. Uh you know, I, I don't know. I mean there's there's the, the delegate game is part math, part strategy, but it's also relationships. And mm-hmm. the relationship aspect of of the Democratic Party is not emphasized enough. You know, these are individuals that are DNC members, especially the elected ones that, you know, want to be good Democrats for the most part. There's definitely bad actors, uh, but you have to know who those are, and you have to be able to deal with them. I mean, when we were doing the Unity Reform commission, we had to, um, you know, I was I was I was working on that with with Larry Cohen. And and our revolution. And I was calling through all the, the DMC members and we were lobbying and we had other members of the unity reform commission lobbying from different states and different. you know, So it was a real organizing effort. Um, and that should start now. Um, I don't doubt that other campaigns are doing that quietly behind the scenes, but I think that Bernie really needs to, to get ahead of, especially if he's the presumed nominee, he should be building those relationships now.
0: Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. There was some criticism, of course, of the campaign uh, months and months ago, up to a year ago, that they weren't having those conversations in, in the way that, say, uh, Elizabeth Warren and her mm-hmm. campaign was having. I mean, she's mm-hmm. a ma- if she's a master at anything, it's it's, uh, you know, shaking babies and kissing hands behind the scenes, you know, with <laughs> with the uh, you like my dad jokes. This is great. I'm gonna have you on every week. Uh, yeah, it's, she's very good at this. She's very adept at, at winning over. Um, key officials. I mean, talk of fucking, you know, like local officials, you know, some, some jackass who sits on the, the city council in Cincinnati or whatever the fuck, right. You know, she's in there making phone calls and, and winning them over. That's the kind of personal touch that I think uh, the Sanders campaign has lacked thus far.
1: Absolutely. Um, and, and, and it goes back to, you know, party politics and understanding how transactional, you know, it's a, it's a benefit that Bernie's not transactional, but it also, um, there's a human aspect of it. I mean, Hillary Clinton, I can't tell you how many people. I, I know several people who were progressive, um, who were actually anti-establishment. But Hillary called them when their mother died. Hillary personally called them on their birthdays. And that was the joke about Bernie and the birthdays. But yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's something to be said. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see. He, he is who he is at this point. But the movement exactly. can learn. The movement can learn. Um, can't teach that old dog new tricks at this point. But I, I've seen some campaign videos coming from him that I never thought he would record, and he's doing yeah. it. He's coming around, recognizing the urgency and the need for it. So, um, one final question. And feel free to make this as brief as you'd like. People should tune into your show, uh, to to find out more about this. This comes from Chuck. Chuck Gondos, good solid patron. Guy, I believe hey, Chuck. Chuck's from Philly. Philly Chuck.
1: Hey, Chuck from Philly. <laughs>
0: He says, how can a state like Iowa go about changing caucus primary rules? Why do we still have caucuses? Don't they disenfranchise a lot of voters? And he has another question that's also very good. Um, I'm sorry. This one comes from David Blowbomb. Let's let's combine these questions because they're part of your participation in the, the Truth and Reconciliation <laughs> committee, committee of 2016. Um, how do we fight these kind of corporatist appointees? who are, he says, also subject to the auction house of K Street and its highest bidders. The DNC doesn't have one shred of credibility left. Uh, we'll almost certainly end up with a brokered convention. So this seems, this is one of your pet issues, you said, um, while uh, on uh, sitting on the DNC, um, stop, stopping these sort of conflicts of interest. So why caucuses? What do we do about those? What's going to be done about those? And then how do we fight what was an obvious uh, conflict of interest in the wake of that Iowa caucus?
1: I'll start with the conflicts of interest because I think it's it's a little bit easier. Um, it's very hard for them to defend conflicts of interest. So they just basically pretend it's not a real issue. And, you know, they will uh, create uh, the they'll, they'll, they'll weaponized identity when it comes to, frankly, caucuses. Um, when it comes to uh, opening up primaries, they'll um, do it when it comes to superdelegates. We saw the same language behind every single one when we tried to reform. But when it came to uh, budget accountability and conflicts of interest. They just, there's, mo- when you go back to money, when you, when you follow the money like that, you can't, there's just no dist- That's why I always say, if you want to tax somebody, you got to go that way. Um, now they can throw out allegations and try to discredit you, which is often a big move for, for the centrists is they'll just, you know, push some sort of false allegation against the person um, calling out the conflicts of interest or the budgetary issues, but uh, place a decapitated
0: uh, yeah. horse head on your bed when you're not at home, you know, those types of things.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, hack your computer. I don't know. Uh, but they, <laughs> I mean, actually funny you say that during the New York form commission, I did receive a set of flowers. Um, they were, they were putting a bunch of, they had empowered a bunch of Twitter trolls to go after us and, um, near Tandon. And that's when Joy Reed pushed out this whole narrative about caucuses uh saying that we wanted to replace primaries of caucuses, which is false. But at the same time, you know, it's funny, the people that they were going after, I wasn't even on the caucus committee, neither was Jim Zogby. We were on the we were on the party reform committee and we were talking about budget issues. But they pointed fingers at us because we were talking about budget issues. And I received flowers in the mail. Or I, I received flowers in my hotel in, in Vegas, um, with a threatening note on it. It was You're kidding. Yeah, and I went. To, I went and I complained about it and, um The tweets, you know, stop. Well, you don't know. I mean, you put something like that out in the universe, and somebody actually believes it. And and, the, and I don't. I mean, they could have just said, "We know she's staying at this hotel. Send it to her hotel room." And they didn't think anything of it being flowers. But now, let um, me ask
0: you was the Was the envelope stained with a with a Cabernet Sauvignon yeah. by any chance? No, <laughs> it's possible. It came out of the third bottle of the night that, uh, that Neera Tandon had, uh, had, I knew
1: cracked. where you were going with that <laughs>
0: <laughs> prior to sending those flowers. That's, that's wild. Although it does, I mean, nothing shocks me these days when it, when it yeah. comes to these people, their, their grasp on power is, um,
1: it's concerning. But with that being said, um, in terms of caucuses, I, I, I urge you to watch my, uh, the episode that's coming out on Monday, the 24th on YouTube, it's going to come out this weekend on Patreon where we interview Larry Cohen because I asked him, what are the pros and cons of caucuses and primaries? And because there's so much organizing effort around caucuses and ending caucuses. And of course um, this, this app disasters is the only reason why I think there may have been some sort of ulterior motives uh, with the app is that they want to end caucuses. There's just not a lot of money to be made out of caucuses. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to do mm-hmm. real field. Yep. Um, but, if you reform caucuses, if you make them more uh, accessible, if you allow early voting, as we did, and if we you know want the numbers released, um, they perform even before that. They perform just as well. People turn out just the same rates as many primaries. You look at a state like New York where they have a closed primary and it's a democratic state, um, you've got just as many issues. Uh, you've got voters being purged. You've people being denied at the polls. Uh, you have an, uh, a democratic party trying to restrict voter access. Uh, you know, New York has the second to lowest turnout right above Louisiana. So it's not like caucuses are, are. I'm not a defender of caucuses, but I'm also like, let's look at this in the context of what we're dealing with. We have a flawed electoral system. Caucuses are decided or primaries decided by state legislatures. Iowa's state legislature is Republican. If you look at Republican state legislatures, say Wisconsin, where there's been real voter purging, you're basically handing over a party controlled process because caucuses are controlled by the democratic party party to a Republican legislature. So you got to think about all the consequences here. You know, a lot of States, whether it's democratic led legislature in New York that has a closed primary or, or Republican legislatures purging people from the voter rolls that has real implications. Um, And, and, you know, there is, the pro side of caucus is in that it is party controlled, but it's also a negative because then you don't have independent election oversight, um, which, you know, the legislatures will, depending on who's in charge will will try to influence. Now, if you look at the states where um, the, the democratic process, lowercase d is, is better. Um, it's more democratic. It would be, this is what Larry Cohen said, uh, west of the Mississippi, states that are west of the Mississippi and Uh, The New England states, so like Massachusetts and above, Uh, New York, Pennsylvania, Illinois, um, for the most part, Uh, New Jersey are just toxic with a capital T. Um, So, you know, that's where the machine is live. Also very democratic states.
0: That's right. Yeah. So there's no panacea. We, we, either way we go, um, there's a fight uh, for sure. People should know that um, and have a you know a realistic view of the terrain if they're thinking about this, that, or the other uh, going forward. But um, yeah, this has been great. Everybody Amazing. check out the Nomiki show. I really, really enjoyed this. I can't wait to hear this episode with uh, Larry Cohen on Monday, you say, for, for the masses. People should join the Patreon, get it early in the weekend.
1: Exactly, exactly. And he's going to come back um, hopefully soon, you know, so we can discuss some of the other primaries. He just has so much institutional knowledge, uh, you know, and I don't know everything. So I have to bring in people who know more. <laughs>
0: Right on. this the benefit of being a host, right? You don't have to know <laughs> everything. You bring in people who do. And that's why I brought you on the <laughs> show. Uh, host of the Nomiki show, Nomiki Const. Thanks so much for coming on DPS. Let's do this again
1: real soon. Thank you.
0: And that concludes this week's episode with Nomiki Const. It was a long one. Thanks so much, everybody, for tuning in and sticking with us for the duration of this chat. As always, if you wanted to ask a question, if you would have liked to have asked a question, Mickey Cons or any of my future upcoming guests, be sure to become a patron at slash dead pundits. The link is also in the show description, and you'll get access to all of our back catalog of B-sides, as well as this week's B-side, which is going to feature Jacobin author, uh, editor, contributor, longtime uh, compadre, Connor Kilpatrick. Connor has written a lot of very inspired and important articles about. What kind of left we need to develop if we are going to take full advantage of this Bernie surge? Now, Miki talked about that a little bit during the show, but Connor and I are going to expand on that in great detail. We're going to talk about the kind of left we need to build if we want to bring in millions and millions of disaffected workers in this country. So you guys are not going to want to miss that one last time. That's patreon.com slash pundits smash that subscribe button at a level at which you are comfortable. All right, to the patrons, we'll see you in a couple of days. To everybody else, we'll see you next week.